Hey, it's Jed Hearn, host of Wizards, Warriors, and Words. If you're enjoying the writing advice on this show, you might like my new podcast, The Jed Hearn Show, where every week I share the best fantasy writing advice that I've learned from publishing three fantasy novels and a best-selling video game. There's over 12 episodes that you can listen to right away, including my top 10 fantasy books of all time, how to make fantasy names that don't suck, two rules that make writing effortless, and my complete summaries of Brandon Sanderson's and Neil Gaiman's writing classes, and much more. Check it out by searching for The Jed Hearn Show in your podcast app. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Wizards, Warriors and Words, a fantasy writing advice podcast. I'm Jed Hearn, author of The Thunder Heist. I'm Dirk Ashton, author of uh, Beyond Redemption. I'm also Dirk Ashton, uh, author of The House of Sacrifice. Uh, I guess I'll also be Dirk Ashton today. Um, I've never written anything though, I don't know why I'm here. And we are joined by someone who will hopefully be who they actually are for the introductions. Adrian Tchaikovsky. Adrian, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, I am not Dirk Ashton. I am Adrian <laughs> Tchaikovsky, fantasy and sci-fi writer, um, best known for Children of Time, which is giant spiders doing very well in space, thank you. Um, most recent book, Doors of Eden, which is sort of parallel world evolutionary thriller, let's say. Awesome. Like that. And uh, I'm sure we'll be touching upon... I need, I need a better elevator. <laughs> you did a good one last episode. That, that was, uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about Doors of Eden uh, that, a lot more. That, because, was, um, that, was, that was at least an hour ago. I can't remember what, anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually a week ago, minimum, um, when listeners heard it, due to the magic of editing. But today's episode will be all about world building. Um, and again, I feel like we're blessed with the perfect guest in Adrian because your sci-fi worlds really do explore some extensive and unique territory i think um so to kick off this discussion about world building i was wondering if you could maybe just describe to us what your approach looks like adrian um where you kind of get your initial inspiration for things from and then how you develop and build things out so that they feel realistic and immersive and above all entertaining okay i mean the the big thing i do with fantasy and with sci-fi is I usually take a fantastical element and then effectively normalize it. So I don't tend to write um, fantasy settings where there is magic, but nobody knows about it, or it's an ancient hidden order, or there, there is a single 
yeah, there are these hidden vampires or, a, or wizards kind of behind everything or an ancient evil that nobody really believes in. I, you, I will take an element like people have powers derived from insects or people can change into animals. And I'll say, fine, everyone does that. That is the normal. Everyone completely accepts that. What does that do? What does that change? And it's basically like dropping a stone in the middle of a pond and you see where the ripples go. And once you've kind of transformed your world through all of through that lens, that gives you a very coherent um, sort of solid base to write a uh, base of a world to write stories in. And it also gives you so you you can then when you're saying because for for me things like characters and plot come after that. Uh, I know that's 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 not the the majority opinion on on from writers, but. Once I've got the world, I then say, well, all right, who are the interesting characters this world produces? Where are the, um, where are the novel flashpoints and um, areas of friction that this world produces, where the stories are going to come from? So everything arises out of that world. So with me, the world is basically everything. Um, all, um, and at the same time, it's also the thing I'm particularly interested in writing about. I want to tell a story set in that world, but I also want to tell a story that explores it from the point of view of the people who live in it. It's a great way of looking at it. And I, I love that point you said about how you kind of try to normalize the fantastic because I definitely can see how it can be almost a little bit of a, not to say this is necessarily bad because I've written these kind of stories. I love these kind of stories, but it can be a bit of a crutch when people say there's this fantastical element, but apart from that, the world is more or less the same because hardly anyone knows about it. And that's good because it lets you have sort of mystery as you discover this new thing. But at the same time, it means that you don't have to possibly think about how it impacts on society in a large way. So it's interesting that there's almost what you've said there is there's kind of like two different schools of thought with this. It's you make the fantastic secretive or you make the fantastic sort of normalized. Um, how much world building would you say stays in for your books? Do you cut a lot of stuff? I mean, you have to really. The, I think it's one of the the art of writing a fantasy novel is really the art is the art of leaving stuff out because i and the temptation is always certainly for me is always to put as much of it in as possible and to just to bury the narrative into these in immense mountains of discussion about the world and so it becomes an exercise in in the framing shot and the backdrop and the odd sort of chance mention that lets you build the world um, on a grand scale and make it this sort of immersive real place that you feel real people live in. <laughs> um, whilst at the same time letting the narrative breathe and letting the characters breathe and not just putting them permanently in the shadow of your kind of enormous expedition, exposition mountain hovering over them at all times. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I think it's definitely, yeah, you're right. It is so much of a a subtractive art as it is an additive art when it comes to developing these sort of things. Um, yeah. That's part of why, yeah, I, why I find world building so frustrating um, mm. is because when I get into it, you know, I'll end up with like a 30 to 60,000 word document of like background and like magic system stuff. And then when I write the book, almost none of that actually gets to make it in there because it's just not actually important to the story. And now I think, you know, one of the responses I get is like, oh yeah, this, it feels like there's so much more going on. And it's like, there is, there really <laughs> is. 
I, I yeah. genuinely I think that's an essential component when you're building a world. If you want to make it an immersive world, you need to build a world where the reader certainly comes away with the idea that there is a ton of stuff extending off the edge of the map, off the edge of the page, because that's how worlds work. I mean, there is a, you do get some narratives, or certainly you, you, it, it's a fancy narrative you used to see where basically by the end of the trilogy, everywhere on the map has been explored and no one has ever mentioned anywhere that isn't on the map. And so you get the impression that this world, world is almost, it's like a little per, perfectly self-contained biosphere mm. <laughs> that exists purely to tell that one story. And that's, that, yeah, that's fine. That, that's the way you can do it. But I, I, as a reader, I always feel with a book like that, you come to the end and feel that wasn't, a, that wasn't a world I'm immersed in. That wasn't a world I feel I can go back to. That wasn't a world I have any questions about. And therefore the book just slides out of the mind. Whereas with a, a book where the world has that kind of, implied expanse to it whether or not that i mean which you can absolutely do without the sixty thousand word document in all honesty if you very carefully tailor and i mean i i'm very much like you i do that all that i do a lot of work ahead of time to work out how it all fits together but even a few just sort of chance remarks about uh, events or places or creatures yes. that don't turn up in the book can give such a flavor of the wider world without without necessarily needing to have anything behind them it's 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 again it's all it's all part of the art i think rob did that really the well of, oh, you yeah, want to feel the world is living um mm. so that, you know you want to feel that as a reader after this after the story ends the world keeps on going it doesn't just stop um you well, know those people, can... you want to feel like the characters are still around they're doing their things having new adventures and all of that lot from a purely think, commercial um, perspective of course it means you can write sequels Yes, <laughs> I wanted to touch upon that later, actually. But um, with that idea, I love that term you brought up, Adrian, of implied expanse, because I think um, like reading the War Eternal trilogy that Rob wrote, like you did that so much where you sort of just like give a term for a thing. You're like, there's this desert where this eye looks out through a rift through reality. Yeah. Or whatever. And I, just, I did that all the time. I mean, yeah. I, I didn't have a document to work from. I was making shit up as I went along with the War Eternal. But yeah, that was kind of. A, a large part of the entire idea behind it. I was just like, I'd, I'd throw an idea out there, um, you know, like a concept, yeah, like this this tear in the universe where an eye staring down upon the world in some sort of eldritch horror type thing. And I, I always thought like, hey, maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll actually go there and do something with it. Maybe not. Definitely <laughs> um, to find out. Yeah, it's but just like Adrian says, it also gives me the chance to write a sequel where they go and explore this type thing. Absolutely. And I think um, it's just that, that specificity of, you know, giving as much detail as you possibly can so that readers are fooled into thinking that you've thought it out really well. Because if you just sort of say like the land to the East, readers are going to be thinking, okay, well, he doesn't actually know what's going on there. But if you're like the, and you give a very specific name for it, and then you maybe like throw in a couple of little flavoring details about this, Land the main export is nuts and fruit. Exactly. Done. Instantly. Readers are thinking, geez, this author really knows their stuff about uh, medieval trading routes and different nut exports. But They're reality, you've just got a bowl of nuts and fruit next to you and you're like, wow, what do they do? What do they do? A hundred percent. Are you a maps guy, Adrian? Do you draw them to help you in the worlds that you build? Um, I, for some books I have, I mean, certainly the Shadows of the Apt had a map. I mean, it had a map. It had came pre-mapped because it was a role-playing game I ran before it was um, a series of books. 
but I think when you are doing that big old epic fantasy, the map becomes an invaluable tool purely for you as a writer so that you can work out where everything is and getting people from place to place is a colossal part of, of, of large scale fantasy books. You know, obviously going back to Tolkien and beyond. Uh, I mean, Lord of the Rings is basically an entire exercise in getting people from A to B that have a lot of complications <laughs> in the middle. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, a map, a map is, as it has a practical use for the writer, and then it, in a very large and complicated book, a series where the reader may be going one to two years between books, the map is useful because it means the reader can have instant look at the map, oh yeah, that's there, that's there, that's what's going on that's the relationship between two of these two countries or locations or whatever. And it's, um, it's genuinely useful. I mean, I think they, there's a lot of shade on maps in books. Hmm. And that seems to come from the idea that, oh, well, you have a map, you have a map in the book, you're kind of pinning the world down and then you village all the bits on the map. And exactly, because they, they seem to, people who seem to assume it automatically leads to that kind, the kind of book I was talking about a, a, a moment ago, which, whilst i think that kind of book almost always does have a map it's the map does not necessarily create that kind of book so yeah i mean i i'm certainly i'm, I'm pro maps where they for that kind of book i mean i don't i've never done maps for the sci for a sci-fi book or anything like that um but certainly my big fantasy stuff is always mapped out purely for the convenience of the reader and for my own reference Okay. I think you'd definitely struggle to have a map for sort of like children of, of, of time, um, seeing as how it, it takes place across many generations. It yeah. would be, uh, so much have to be an evolving map as you went on. It could, I mean, I mean, cool. I mean think, honestly, you say that I could have done the book with an evolving map. I could have started each spider section with a map of the world as it expanded, as the spiders kind of explored. As their web expanded, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think it would have been necessary in the way that it's a map is, is, is useful for epic fantasy, but it would actually have been quite interesting, I think, to do. I suspect, that I, I mean, honestly, I suspect there's probably not quite enough geography in that book to, book to make, the, the, make the maps interesting enough, but it would, be an, it would be a way of approaching that kind of narrative. I would love to see some drawings of, like, the spider cities. I think that would be cool to have, like, as an illustrated thing for it. Um, yeah, my we're going to continue with this ever, in a second. Oh, sorry, Adrian. My biggest ever trolling move is, as a writer <laughs> to, to my readership was in The Shadows of the App, and it involved the map at the beginning of um, the Sea Watch. So there's an area sort of south off the map in the earlier books called the Spiderlands, um, where the, kind of the spider kingdom people live. And you, you meet a lot of them, and you hear a lot about it, you never get to see it. But then the plot in the sea watch seems to be working up to well this is obviously all going to come down to some sort of spiderlands thing and in the beginning of the book there is the complete map of the spiderlands and then the book never goes there <laughs> the map is essentially part of the early book's misdirection of what's going on in the book that's clever yeah oh, you're totally right that is a big giveaway when people yeah when maps only have information on cities that are on the western side of a country for instance you're like well we're probably not going over to the east coast so yes um we're going to continue with this in a second but we're just going to pause for our featured book of the week which uh adrian you have that again if you would like to select the book to spruik to our oh, rabid okay. reader audience oh i should have prepped for this shouldn't i Hold on. yeah i really need to give people more advanced notice when we do the featured books rather than that's why i just tend to pick one off my bookshelf and go oh. I mean, that works too. <laughs> yeah. 
So this is Firewalkers. This is a novella, not a full-on novel. So it's that that thick. Ooh, this is my quickly. big kind of, um, I guess, climate change novella. Uh, it's set in the future in equatorial Africa, Gabon, I believe, to be specific, when the world is on the way out because of climate change. So some places are underwater, and other places like this one are desertified. But even though the equator is no longer habitable, you need it for your space elevator because all the rich people on Earth are getting off to their big luxury spaceships up there. <laughs> so Firewalkers is set in the township at the foot of the space elevator. All the people who maintain uh, and previously uh, previously built it, and the Firewalkers themselves are three kids who get to go out into the utterly lethal deserts to repair the solar farms because the rich people need their air conditioning before they go off on the spaceship. <laughs> And it's about what they found out in the desert and what's been kind of growing and developing there. That sounds in awesome. In nasty ways. Uh, that is Firewalkers by Adrian Tchaikovsky. I didn't actually know that that was one of the books you've written. That's awesome. Um, how does a world building for a novella get, how does, do you approach that differently to a big fat, you know, full length science fiction or fantasy book? Um, so novellas, especially for science fiction, I find the novella length, which for anyone who's, who's not up, is usually about thirty to 40,000 words, is the absolute perfect length to fully explore a single idea. Um, so it tends to be much more focused than a novel, um, but at the same time, unlike, say, a short story, you've got time to actually explore the world, and usually the idea I'm trying to explore is the world that I'm writing about. So... I mean, for my other event, so the expert systems champion is all about the world that that character finds himself in. And his journey is specifically taking the readership through, well, how did this world uh, um, arise and what actually is going on? Because it's what appears to be going on at the beginning is, no, is not actually how the world is composed. And Firewalkers is certainly the exploration of the world and made things, which is another one of my um, tour, um, tour at Com novellas, is about the world of the little kind of marionette people that are invading human cities which is uh, so yeah it's it's i think if exploring the world is what you're specifically wanting to do it's a perfect length for it if you wanted to do to tell a story but also take time to explore the world that would probably push the boundaries of what you could fit into a novella length i totally agree with that i think um the first book that, that i published fires of the dead is basically as you said it's a twenty thousand word novella that i pretty much wrote to explore a specific type of sort of fire-based magic system and as you say it's like just th that's perfect sweet spot for kind of going deep into a specific idea or a concept that you're interested in um without necessarily having to get massively bogged down in side plots or things that detract from that um you mentioned role-playing before, and it's, it's my understanding that you kind of have used role-playing in a very interesting way to sort of brainstorm and develop stories. Would you like to talk to that for a bit? Um, I mean, not so much, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> not, not, you know, in the, I mean, specifically the link, the link with the role-playing there is that the, the first series I wrote, Shadows of the Apt, is based on a role-playing campaign I ran back at university sort of... Um, 10, 15 years previous. Um, and the, the advantage that brought to me was that it was a world I knew extremely well, because when you're running a, a, a role-playing campaign, 
unlike when you're writing a book, uh, the principal characters don't do what they're told and will wander off and go places that you don't, didn't plan and therefore you have to have a very good working knowledge of what, where the, how the world works and what is in any given place people might want to go to because you're kind of being dragged along after your willful band of players, which is perfect training for then writing books in the world because wherever you want the story to go, you kind of know what's there already and you can kind of just comfortably tell the stories that those places um, would naturally give rise to. That was, I think, my favorite part about writing the Obsid first Obsidian Path book, which is named based on a role-playing game like system I built and ran like a decade or two ago, was all the world building was done for me. It was like, you know, you could basically launch straight into the story because I knew the world intimately because I'd written the whole thing. I had books and books of information and, you know, at right there, uh, five different magic systems laid out, rules for everything, how everything worked. I mean, if I wanted to get really retentive, I could dig in and be like, all right, how much is this spell going to cost? Kind of, you know, level <laughs> stuff. Real it, because it's, that's not actually interesting, but, you know, like having all that there at your fingertips is uh, was really nice after like the amount of world building that I had to do for like, say, Manifest Delusions or City mm -hmm. of Sacrifice stuff. You know, the Obsidian Path book was just like phew, straight into it. Very cool. well, having that stuff is is really useful. I mean, it's one of the tips we've actually mentioned um, on a previous episode is when you've got that stuff just sat there, not necessarily going into the story, just sat there, it, it can seep in through through the writing, you know, without you even sort of meaning to do it sometimes, you know, some of that information just seeps through and it just makes the world building feel a lot more um, sort of, you know, complete and, and deep. Hmm. Dirk, do you have anything to add? One, um, one question that, one thing that I've thought about quite a bit um, regarding fantasy and sci-fi today, maybe fantasy more than sci-fi, is um, do you guys think that, that uh, the resurgence the, um, and the popularity and having gone back so many decades now of role-playing games and the fact that I think I mean, I seem to be one of the very few authors who doesn't have a background in role-playing games. Um, I've never, I've, I've played like I think one half campaign of Dungeons and Dragons in college back in like the 1930s. But um, uh, you're not that old, Dirk. How how how, um, how pervasive do you think the influence is now? uh on 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 uh, role-playing games and the fact that 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 a lot of authors run role-playing games or have quite a bit how 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 much of that do you think affects fantasy today and do you think it's that that it's very different now and probably always will be because of because of that influence yeah i mean i for, for my money, I think you, you can't really overstate the um, the impact it's had. I certainly, the vast majority of fantasy authors of my generation are gamers. A fair number, a fair number older than me are gamers. I mean, up to including um, George R. R. Martin, for example. Um, and one of the things I think the influence of role playing has done it's it's broken down the 
sort of early post-Tolkienian sort of black-white morality narrative of there are these good people and here's the Dark Lord and the heroes are heroic. They have, may have moments of doubt and they may have moments of worry, but they're basically heroic and the villains are villainous and there's a great big moral distance between them. The, the current wave of, of fantasy, you know, obviously yeah, up to and including obviously grimdark which is which really epitomizes it is very much more that morally gray area of more morally complex characters doing complex frequently non-heroic things and if you think of the way the average adventuring party behaves that's kind of where i think where that comes from because players generally will do frequently do very very bad things um and so I suspect that the point that fantasy changed was the point where you are giving kind of random groups of players command of the destiny of, in inverted commas, heroes and finding out that actually they don't tend to be that heroic a lot of the time. That's a fascinating observation. I would, I would love to know, does anybody know if Stephen R. Donaldson was a, was a player? Let's talk yeah. about, I mean, he seriously goes into that morally ambiguous um do you think he does i mean it's and if you're looking at the like the thomas covenant stuff it's it's i think the thomas covenant moral lines are drawn as as hard as they are in tolkien and the 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 crossing of them by covenant is extremely almost sort of symbolically performative and it happened and then after that it doesn't really happen again and it's just there there's there's that that in, incident he carries around with him but i don't think as a as a series of books i don't think it has any of that grayness it, i mean it has very explicit literal in-world divisions of good and evil yeah um so i i mean he i don't know he would have to have been quite early on the scene for gaming i think given the time he was writing but i don't think if he wasn't if he was playing it doesn't to my mind show in his writing in the same way that it does in later authors okay yeah. that makes sense i mean Any there is there is the thing that laps his daughter when she comes on to end up that's a little bit later and very strange uh, i do have uh, one question i was thinking about um how, how do you find um world building differing for you between the science fiction and the fantasy stuff right question. Uh, like Science fiction seems like I've, I've got one SF novel, and frankly, the amount of research I had to do just to, to do that one book was insane. Whereas with the fantasy stuff, I could just kind of whole cloth make shit up. How's, how's that yeah, for you? I mean, it's I. I mean, science science fiction is another continuum. It very much depends where you're aiming with your science. So, Children of Time, although it does get described as space opera um is to me more it's more of a, it's a hard science fiction book where i am trying to get the science as right as possible because if nothing else i think the impact of of the the spider civilization would be considerably lessened if i wasn't trying to make it plausible you know if it was very hand wavy and they're basically magic talking spiders it's not the same thing as the idea that actually this is the thing that conceivably could evolve even if they it's got a kind of a the the nanovirus kind of driving it along at a bit of an accelerated rate um, and so there, yes, the I, I work very hard to get the science right, and it is, you know, it, it is a whole extra burden of work in 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 the setup of the book. 
uh, and I, you know, I spoke to physicists and I went to the, um, the Natural History Museum in London and sat in with the entomology department and quizzed them about the sort of the, the structural challenges of when you get, make your invertebrates bigger and things like that. Um, and I've done the same with, um, I mean, Doors of Eden has a fair amount of that on the evolutionary side. Um, the physics of water-filled spacecraft are a whole thing that the children are ruined because that gives you some very interesting kind of um, just engineering challenges. There's a chap called Nick Bradbeer, who is my go-to for spaceship design. Um, it, and we spent a long time going back and forth on precisely what you would need and the challenges involved. Um, whereas, for example, I'm currently working on um, uh, a series called The Final Architecture, the first of which is out sort of mid next year. Uh, called Shards of Earth, and that that is much more explicitly a space opera. So, although it has rules in the way its sort of technology works, they are a bit more divorced from real science and far more kind of speculative. Uh, and in that way, it's a bit like developing a fantasy world. In that, the point there is you need to develop something that is consistent, but you're not actually bound to the way the real world works if you don't want to. Mm. Yeah, I remember the uh, the ant computers. Uh, oh, so cool! Love that part. Amazing. Love that. That just, you know, that was one. I think I like had to go through and reread it again because I was like, <laughs> that was really cool. Awesome. Well, I think this is. Uh, oh, does Rob have a an, a creature on his lap? I didn't even notice Cora coming. No, I've got a little little <laughs> monster here. Uh, for people who are listening, Rob has got uh, his beagle on his lap right now. Which is it very should have turned up for the last one when we were specifically talking about animals. Yeah, turned up for this one instead. <laughs> oh, well, I have to at least one recording session. Once every recording session. Yes, I did have a crack at dogs in um, dogs of dogs war. of war. Yes, which I think is still my favourite of my own sci-fi books. Isn't it? I saw that in yeah. um, my local library the other day. I have to give it a read. That's got a sequel coming out in January. Oh, nice. Is anything? Um, quickly that you did in the world building of dogs of war that made it your favorite science fiction book out of the ones you've written compared to other ones um i think it's the when we're talking about the idea of using animals to explore human nature that's where i go deepest into that hmm. because i mean for any food who don't know the book it's about it's near near future we have bioengineered animal soldiers kind of taking part in wars around the world mostly because, I mean, ostensibly because they can do dangerous things that won't get humans killed, but also because they can do terrible things that won't get humans blamed. <laughs> um, and it's about a squad of these led by a dog called Rex, which gets cut off from its chain of command and has to start making its own kind of ethical decisions about what is and isn't right to do. And then it kind of spirals. It's, so it's, a, it's about the rights of um, non-human sentience. It's about morality and ethics in general, how how society approaches change because obviously as as the book goes on the, you have things like the un world court and so forth how does i will do these things have rights or are we allowed to just effectively dispose of them all after the war's finished um and i think i just it's it's one of my shorter books weirdly enough and it's 50 percent told through the point of view of rex who starts off with a very simple worldview which is basically i want to be a good dog i will do what master tells me and then has to effectively construct himself a an outlook 
based mm. on what he's seeing and what he's being advised by the other characters until he becomes a very complex character towards the end with and a very wise character and i think that they, that the development of rex as the the spokesperson for the book and as the point of view character or something i, I feel I, I managed to 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 nail very nicely awesome okay just me every time adrian like mentions one of his books and describes what it's about you're like oh Damn, I want to read that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's, that's the idea. You're too good at describing these things, Adrian. It's almost like you've written books that are really amazing and that they just sell themselves through their own concepts. Who would have thought? Anyway, <laughs> um, that is a good point to wrap this one up. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, we will see you again next time. Bye, everybody. And thanks again thanks. for coming, Adrian. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wizards, Warriors and Words. We hope you learned something useful. We love hearing from our listeners. Our email is wizardswarriorswords at gmail.com, which you can also find in the show notes. I personally read and respond to every email, so feel free to let us know what you thought about this episode. We'd also love to hear your questions. Send in a question via that email, wizardswarriorswords at gmail.com, and we might even answer it on the show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and write a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps more people discover the show. Wizards, Warriors and Words is jointly hosted by Dirk Ashton, Michael R. Fletcher, Rob J. Hayes and Jed Hearn. Our music comes from Michael R. Fletcher and our artwork is by Felix Ortiz. Thank you again for listening. Now go and write extraordinary stories. We'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.